Hello and welcome back to the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute of Contemporary Christianity. This is the show for culture makers, cultural observers, cultural participants. If your life brings you into contact with at least one other person, you are a member of a culture, and we want to help you think about culture in a way that honors God and that takes every thought captive to King Jesus. I'm Ryan Aris, and this is episode one of season two of the podcast for Cultural Reformation. This season is all about cultural pressure points. Where is the ground shifting under our feet, and what does the timeless, authoritative Word of God call normal? I'm excited for this season. We've got some great guests planned, and today is no exception. It's my pleasure to have Jeff Durbin on the show. A lot of you will know Jeff as the senior pastor at Apologia Church in Phoenix, Arizona, and the host of the TV show Next Week with Jeff Durbin. This is also a mobile episode. Jeff was with us in August for the EICC's Worldview Leadership League, and we took a walk along the lakeshore to talk about martial arts and self-defense and Eastern paganism and pacifism, defending the innocent, protecting the vulnerable, and the godly use of force in opposing evil. I hope you enjoy it. Share it with your friends and loved ones. And keep checking back weekly. We are going to have new episodes every week this season. Jeff, thanks, uh, thanks for being with us. It's great to have yeah, you. My pleasure. Yeah. So what, uh, what I'm going to do is read out uh, this passage from Nehemiah. And I'll just ask you to tell us about what it, uh, what it would have meant for its original hearers. And okay. some about uh, how we can think about it today. Okay. I hope, and, I, hope uh, I, I can tell you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So this is Nehemiah 4, uh, 15 to 23. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work. And half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So, neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. So, Jeff, maybe you could just uh, say a little bit about the context of this passage and what it was that... uh, that precipitated this kind of 24-7 alertness and what, what it might mean for us today? Well, I think uh, overall it'd be good to sort of like put underneath that the whole biblical worldview context in Nehemiah's time, the building of the wall, all of that. Um, so laying down in terms of why were these men involved in this, carrying weapons? I mean, shouldn't we turn the other cheek kind of a thing? So in the context of ancient Israel, the, the many times, not just this this one instance, but the many times where Israel is called to go to battle, men to be men were called to specifically take up arms to fight as uh, an army. The magistrate would organize for uh, civil defense when they were attacked. In this particular instance, is just again one instance that you can draw from in terms of the many times this sort of thing would happen, where you had the people of Israel using weaponry, organizing for defense, fighting the enemy, whether it was offensive or whether it was defensive, um, is part and parcel to ancient Israel's story that Yahweh called them to fight. You have, of course, even in their songs, they would have sang in church. Psalm 144.1, it's a popular verse. It was actually, when I owned my karate school, it was on a big banner in my karate school. Psalm 144.1, I'm sure... The unbelievers who came in and probably like, what, what's that doing here? Um, so Psalm 144.1, in terms of what they would have been singing during this time, was, um, blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war, my fingers for battle. So there's a, there's a praise to God 
for training my hands for war, my fingers for battle. Um, And so in the context of this particular passage, when we have any historical instance like this, we can see a consistent theme that the people of Israel were called by God. It was a righteous thing to protect people, to defend them from the enemy, um, to protect the innocent. And it was seen as as a matter of justice, that you need to defend uh, property, defend lives, and that is just. And so it, so this is a really important aspect to this whole discussion. One of the things I heard Dr. Bonson say a long time ago on a radio show about the Second Amendment and guns was something actually compelling. I'm really glad that he said it this way. He said that pacifism is technically the right mindset, and that would be, if all things were the way they're supposed to be, pacifism would be the right way. That would be the good thing. But we don't live in a world where pacifism is a possibility in terms of a righteous stance, because we live in a fallen world where there are wicked people, there are thieves, there are robbers, there are rapists, there are murderers, people that seek the innocent's lives. And so because of that, pacifism isn't a possibility, and it's not actually a righteous stance in a fallen world. Um, So in a fallen world where there's evil, where there's innocence, and then there's perpetrators of crimes, murder, the righteous stance is to actually do what God calls people to do, and that's organized for defense, to protect the innocent, and to actually attack the enemy um, who seeks to destroy you. So contextually... You can move from the first part of the Torah all the way through the Tanakh, and you can see this consistent theme that God actually um, wants his people to, I guess this would be good what it says, wants the people to rejoice in uh, the arts of self-defense, to actually uh, prepare themselves for battle, to go to battle, to fight for righteous causes. And again, underneath all that would be the, the idea, the truth, that if we weren't in a fallen world, then pacifism would be the ideal. But we're not, um, we're not in that perfect world. We're in a fallen world with sinful people. And, uh, yeah, I guess that's a good start to the discussion. Yeah, no, that was really helpful. I like, uh, I like how you said that about, uh, about the art of self-defense. One of the things that, that's kind of been on my, yes. been on my yes. mind, and I know that uh, you, you trained... Yeah. You, know, you you got five earned black belts, is that right? Yes. Um, at least one of them is in karate. What yeah. uh, what have you done? So, um, for the, the, I have a fourth degree black belt. I'm a master in a system of Taekwondo called Chundokwan Taekwondo, which is a combat system of Taekwondo. It's not like you would commonly see, at least across the United States, on the average street corner where you see a Taekwondo school where it's more of a sport Taekwondo. Uh, my system was a combat system of Taekwondo. And then the karate system that I did uh, growing up in Japan, um, my dad was military, and so I did, I, I did both systems. I did the combat Taekwondo system and the karate system at the same time. So my week was six days a week of martial arts training. And um, so the combat karate system that I know was sort of an ancient form of karate that was... Uh, focusing in on everything in terms of uh, empty hand and weaponry, throwing, jujitsu, those sorts of things, all wrapped up into one system. So I really saw my karate system as more of a complete system than a taekwondo system. Um, The karate system was more geared for all forms of combat. And so, yeah, a master, I have a master um, degree in taekwondo, and my karate system is, I have one black belt. Gotcha. And I did other systems as well, which I think is valuable. Um, Wing Chun uh, for hands and trapping. I don't think there's a better system in the history of the world in terms of trapping and hand. Uh, but Wing Chun is very deficient when it comes to kicking and, and grappling. So it has its areas where it's amazing. Um, I did Muay Thai kickboxing, which when you're, when you're already proficient in one art of kicking... Picking up Muay Thai is actually very, very easy. Right. Um, uh, so did that for a, some time. Also did combat Hapkido. Um, I did some Aikido, but not as much as I did combat Hapkido. Uh, Gracie Jiu-Jitsu for ground fighting. Um, 
in all my years of competition, I was given the gift of being able to be close to and connect with some of the best martial artists in the world. Um, I was on the national karate team and, uh, or a national karate team. And once a month we had to train together. It was mandatory. So we would train for like eight hours once a month together. Guys from all over the country that were the best on earth. And so I got to exchange stuff with men from around the world and got trained by some of the best fighters and competitors on the planet, which is a huge gift. Um, got to dabble in little things here and there, like um, when I was in Mortal Kombat, the live tour, um, I played Johnny Cage and Nightwolf and Baraka. And one of the guys on the tour who played Sub-Zero, he was a uh, capoeira maestro, which is a capoeira is a Brazilian. Brazilian. Yeah, it's an amazing, beautiful, beautiful art. Not yeah. entirely street effective, but very beautiful. So while I was on tour with him, we'd exchange stuff. I'd teach him stuff. He would teach me stuff. And so I got to do some of that. And um, yeah, so uh, on top of sort of the base systems that I learned, I learned a lot of these other systems. And yeah, be, actually, there'd be a good conversation to have. I'm not sure how much you have in your notes, but there's a good conversation to have in terms of Christians often ask, which, which art should I choose? There are actually some really important things I'd love people for people to hear about choosing an art but maybe we'll get to that later. Yeah, that'd be awesome. That, that was a uh, that was a pretty cool cool kind of indulgence for me, a curiosity for me. But it, it was prompted by again, you said uh, you said the art of self defense, yeah. and uh, there's a like there's a real difference um, between martial arts and the, uh, the the philosophy or the ideology behind them. Yes, and sort of like you know self defense. I guess uh, what, what would be some of the major differences between self-defense, yeah. street-level effective tactics, and a system of, uh, of martial art? That's a good question. Yeah, so, so a complete martial arts system, mastery of a complete martial arts system, is really mastering from the toes to the head. You're mastering your balance, you're mastering movement, you're mastering angles, you're mastering striking, striking distant, uh, distance, uh, uh, striking distances in terms of uh, safe zone, kicking zone, punching zone, trapping zone, grappling zone. So you're trying to master sort of the whole thing around you, um, the whole range of techniques, and again, your balance, uh, kicking posture, the scientifically best way to hold your body up for the kick, how you get the most of your hip into a kick, you know, everything in terms of um, how to get more pounds per square inch in a punch, where do you strike with which knuckle, and at what angle, and all that stuff. So it's sort of mastering everything in that particular system's expression. Um, and when you think about a self-defense course, like let's say you do a crash course on a Saturday for a bunch of uh, women who want to learn self-defense. Well, there's no time to, in even a 10-hour day, to sit down with these women and begin to really develop them with a series of techniques punches and kicks, angles, those sorts of things. There's no way to do it. And, and this is why, because not only is it, is it not possible to create muscle memory in that time period, and not only are you going to lose most of what you hear anyways, but when you're in a, um, a fighting situation, you're being attacked, you, re, you immediately, you get this dump of adrenaline, and you begin to lose the ability, you lose your fine motor skills. So when you're scared, when you're being attacked, you don't have the ability to be precise with your fingers, with your hands, so you lose all the fine motor skills. One of the benefits of fighting your whole life is you're so used to that adrenaline dump and that fighting situation, there's a lot less fear, so you have a little more control over fine motor skills. But in a day where you have 10 hours with, with a bunch of, say, women, you have to focus in upon mostly... Um, concepts. So of course you want to learn how to punch properly. Of course you want to learn how to kick properly, but only to a degree and almost like not more than 10 minutes on that. (laughs) Because it doesn't matter. What matters is you understand the concepts and the principles. Like for example, rather than teaching a woman in 10 hours how to throw a proper punch, you're teaching her where to strike with whatever. So for example, you're not spending eight hours on learning how to throw this amazing uh, hook punch you're spending time saying, okay, with whatever you get out there, 
you have to hit this attacker in his throat, in his trachea. You have to pull at his eyes with your thumbs. You have to, uh, you know, finger jab his eyeballs. You want to hit his nose to cause him not to be able to see. You want to be able to pull his ear off. Um, For example, when I would teach women's self-defense courses in terms of rape prevention courses, I was teaching it to people living in the city, and some of the stuff was, I knew that this might even happen to these ladies. So, and this might get a little graphic here, but I'll try to keep it somewhat level. Um, So we would teach where if a man is attacking you, he's on top of you, you want to take your thumbs and put them into his eye sockets until you can remove something. Or we would say things like, um, if a guy grabs you from behind, I'm not teaching you how to hip toss the guy because there's not enough time to get you proficient at that, and you lose your fine motor skills, you're gasping for air, you may not be able to do it, so I would teach to grab the groin and to pull until you take something off. Yeah, yeah, hip toss doesn't really deal the same level of damage. No, and uh, so I'm not teaching, like, here's five steps to get released from a bear hug, because you're not getting out of it. Um, Not when a guy wants to get you, and he's much stronger than you, you could, you could train your whole life and still struggle with that guy. However, there is no way for him to not let go of you if you grab a hold of his man parts and you squeeze until something breaks. And so that's, that's in terms of self-defense. It's more principles, concepts, um, things like that. So, you know, this is actually really interesting, too, in terms of, say, for example, Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. There is no better ground system in the history of the world than Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. But Gracie Jiu-Jitsu still has its deficiencies. For example, if you're a master of Gracie Jiu-Jitsu and you spent your whole life mastering the ground game, you still are very deficient with your punches and kicks. Gracie Jiu-Jitsu is horrible. It is, it is treacherously bad when it comes to striking because that's not where it focuses. And, and nobody starts a fight from the ground, usually. Yeah, you get to the ground, but it's, it's, it's amazing on the ground. But this is where it gets even more interesting. If you have more than one attacker, Gracie Jiu-Jitsu is meaningless. Because if you can get the guy, one guy to the ground, his friend's stomping on your head while you're on the ground. So when it comes to multiple attackers, Gracie Jiu-Jitsu is a meaningless system. And if I'm on the ground with somebody and I'm allowed to pull their eyeball out, or to tear their ear off their head, or to bite into their cheek, then it becomes less effective as well. Because there's rules um, that keep you protected in Gracie Jiu-Jitsu from those sorts of things, so you have more time to work. Um, But when we talk about self-defense for women, or a quick self-defense course, it's more about concepts and principles, like where to strike the person, where's the most effective, how to get away as quickly as possible, and... um, that would be the difference. So it's more of the crash course of, well, put it this way. This is one of those, this is one of those amazing examples of the Christian worldview too, operating according to the Christian worldview inadvertently. So martial arts and martial science, it's good ways to talk about it depending on which direction you're going. The martial science, the fighting science aspect, is looking at the human body and saying, okay, how is this thing designed? What's the purpose of this limb? And how far is this design? Where can it go? So the whole point of martial science is looking at the design of the human body, the complexities of the human body, and determining how do I undo this design? So so for example, like an arm bar, I know the arm can only function in a certain way. So what I do as a martial science aspect is I say, okay, the arm is designed to do this. So let's make it do something it's not designed to do. And uh, let's utilize the body's pain mechanism and response against the attacker, so it's really, un, you, you're really trying to dismantle God's design in the fight, huh. Huh. Which, which is a really interesting thing for a Christian to say, right? Yeah, very, it's a very interesting thing, and I mean, it, it brings up a really interesting question about, like, I guess, first of all, like, sort of limits, limits in the use of force, yeah. um, because, like, one, at, uh, I mean, I don't know, I don't know wh- at what point you say at the end of the day, but at some point, you're contending with another human being made in the image of God. Right. And, uh, like, how do, you, how do you reconcile? This is such an important question. And if you think about what you're asking, how this conversation can only really make sense within a Christian framework, where you have to ask questions like, how far is enough? 
and to what extent am I permitted to damage this person, and at what point do I actually respond? So I would say layer it in terms of Jesus. When he says, if your enemy strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. So the point there is not Jesus teaching pacifism in terms of self-defense. Like if somebody hits you, you can't hit him back. Jesus uses a really specific word there, and he talks about smacking somebody on the right cheek. Well, Israel, Hebrew thought, was a right-handed culture. You have it all throughout the Old Testament, at my right hand, you know, in, my, in his right hand, there are pleasures forever, those sorts of things. So it's a right-handed reference culture. So when Jesus says if somebody strikes, smacks you on the right cheek, turn the other one to him, that has nothing to do with self-defense. A, a, right, a, a smack to your right, your right cheek is a backhanded slap. So it was the backhanded slap. Jesus says if somebody gives you the backhanded slap, turn the other cheek. In other words, so, that, so it's essentially talking about a person who is dissing you, cutting you down, they're insulting you just turn the other cheek don't respond so what i would say is it's immoral for me to get into a fight a self-defense situation where the person was just insulting me that would offend god i can't say well they were insulting me so i hit them that would be unjust it would actually be a sin but if somebody actually strikes me and attacks me now they're actually it's a matter of 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 preservation and justice to actually be able to defend and respond or if somebody, say, walks up to my wife and hits her in the chest, well, now I have a responsibility as a man to protect my wife and defend her. If I don't, I would say that's sin. Um, so, I mean, the principle of, uh, of private property presupposes the, the capacity to defend that. That's right. That's right. And God, in his law, gives reference, case law examples. If somebody breaks into your house at night... Um, so the, the case law example there is if somebody breaks into your home at night, now you don't know what their intentions are. They're coming to you at night. You're, you can't see what's going on. You don't know if they're there to kill you. So God says basically if you have to kill that intruder, there's no sin there. It's a justifiable killing of another human being because you were trying to defend your life. But God basically teaches there in that same case law that if they break in and it's daytime and you can see that it's only a thief, you are not allowed to take a thief's life. So I can't kill a human being because they steal from me. So great example. In Arizona a couple years ago, there was a situation that happened in a local mall where this thief stole something from a department store. He was running out of the mall. The security was chasing him. And this old man who was carrying we have constitutional carry in arizona you can carry a gun with you anywhere and um he was carrying a gun he sees the security chasing this thief with stuff on his arms well this old man takes his gun out and he shoots the guy in the back and some people were saying well you know he stole stuff we're allowed to carry guns in the state he was a thief he was running and, and yeah he, he's guilty of a crime but what i would say to that is that's wicked because, yes, he was a thief. He deserves to be punished for that. It was a crime. He's a criminal. Amen and, and hallelujah all the, to all that. But you can't maim another human being or murder them because they steal. It's not a capital offense, no. like scripturally. God does not allow us to punish people um, in an unjust way. Like, I can't kill somebody for being a thief. And um, it's just not, it's not one of the bounds of God's stipulated justice. So, in terms of, say, a fight on the street, if somebody attacks me, say I'm going to the, the store at night, I'm walking out with my grocery cart, and a guy comes up to me in my car, and he pulls out a weapon, I would say, according to God's standards there, I don't know what this man's intentions are, he could very easily kill me with this weapon, I have a right at that point to defend myself to the point of actually killing this person. Because it's either at that point they're going to take the life of an innocent person, me, or I'm going to actually have to defend myself to the degree that he loses his life. If he has a weapon, something like that. Now, let's say a guy walks up to me at the mall. I bump into him at the mall. And I, you know, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to bump into you. He turns around and he punches me in the face. He has no weapons. He punches me in the face. I don't believe that I have the right at that point to actually end this man's life. Because it's a simple scuffle. However... If, as the fight moves on, I start to get the feeling this guy's not in it to, to knock me out. He's trying to choke me and take the life.
life out of me. At that point, I have to move to a degree now. Okay, now I have to fight for my own life. You know, a great example. So, video, it's one of the most horrific videos I've ever seen in my life. Um, it truly was. I've seen a lot of evil things in my day and a lot of videos of some pretty awful things. It was in Brazil. It was a video that was on um, LiveLeak, I think. It came across my feed. And it was uh, 15-year-old boys in Brazil. And they get into a little scuffle. Someone's recording it on their cell phone. Well, they start fighting. They get to the ground. Obviously, they both knew jujitsu. It was obvious through their, what they were doing. Well, one of the kids got on top of the other one and started choking him in a rear naked choke from behind. And it became really obvious that the kid started to lose control of himself and he was just furious. And so he was holding on. And all you need to do for a rear naked choke to knock somebody out is hold on for maybe 10 seconds. I mean, if you do it right, you'll get it done in five seconds. But 10 seconds max, and you're out. Well, this kid held on for five minutes at full strength. The kid was dead after one minute, but he just kept holding on, and he killed this kid. So it's possible, it is possible that somebody gets you in a rear naked choke, and you may kind of get the understanding this person knows what they're doing, and I, if I don't do something, he could kill me. I'll pass out and he'll hold on and I could die. It happened also at a nightclub in Arizona in the last two years. One of the bouncers was throwing a rowdy guy out. And uh, he was a new bouncer. He grabs the guy in the rear naked choke, drags him out of the building. And by the time they got outside, the guy was dead. Because he held on to the rear naked choke for too long. So somebody might say, well, I don't think you have the right to kill somebody who puts you in a headlock. It's like, well, it just kind of depends. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. if, if somebody can kill you by putting you in a headlock. So I, I think that, you know, there's degrees there. And you really just have to work with biblical principles and say, is it right for me to maim this person right now? Um, to what degree have they threatened me? Is my life in danger? Um, I do want to be aware of that. Because let's say, for example, if somebody attacks me on the street and they have no weapons. And I'm not really in any danger except maybe a scuffle. I think pulling out a knife in that case to start maiming that person is very questionable. Now, if you talk to the guy that gets attacked like that and he starts to explain, no, this is a much bigger man, he was violent and he was threatening to kill me, well then yeah, you can pull out a weapon and defend yourself to your life. But like I said, it really just kind of depends on the context. <laughs> right, so I mean, it sounds like, and this should be no surprise, but it sounds like you know, a, a first principle before or before um, understanding the use of force is understanding your Bible. Just that thought that we had a minute ago about God's case law example where you're not allowed to kill a thief when you know they're a thief. Well, God doesn't offer you, he doesn't afford you any protection if, if you're before the judge and you killed a guy who was stealing from you. Yeah. And you go, well, your honor, um, this guy was stealing and the, the, God doesn't afford you any protection. That's an image bearer of God, and you can't you can't do something other than eye for eye and tooth for tooth. He stole your Blu-ray. It doesn't mean you get to take his life. So yeah, understanding God's standards of justice is important. And I would say, as a final word on that, imagine if you take the word of God out of the out of this whole context right now. No, no God's standards. No God's law. Well, now you've got a, a, an instrument of chaos. Martial arts becomes an instrument of chaos where it's just an instrument of destruction because you don't have any real standards. There's no objective, ultimate standards about how far can this go. Um, to what extent can I defend myself and under what conditions? So if you don't have God's word and his standard, uh, martial arts becomes an instrument of chaos and destruction. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Now, there's a... Uh... You've probably got uh, got similar people, but there's a vocal sort of section of uh, of Christians um, who, and it's uh, it, they're not inherently pacifists, but with regards to the question of martial arts, so you uh, you did your martial arts training, a lot of it in Japan. Yeah. You mentioned yeah. uh, a lot of these martial arts systems come from the East, um, and there, there's a uh, there's a section of believers who say that we ought not to participate in these things because they they were originated with with pagans, yeah. um, but yet uh, here you are, a pastor or an elder, 
a karate instructor uh, holding all these things together. Um, what uh, I get? What's what's the what would be a response to those those brothers and sisters? Well, it's a valid concern um, if you're ignorant about, and I mean that in a classical sense, not an offensive sense. If you're ignorant about martial science, martial arts, history, how we got it, why we got it, um, it's an understandable uh, concern. Again, if you're ignorant about those things, but if you know um, the nature of martial arts and martial science, the purpose, the extent, history, um, the particular history of each style, well, then there's just no excuse. At that point, I'd say you're not thinking biblically and critically, because um, if, if you want to run into the Bible and find all the examples of God telling his people to fight and to use weaponry and if you want to see the text where God is praised for training our hands for battle and for war, I mean, we can do that too. But in terms of the particular systems, it's important to ask the question, well, which system are you talking about? Because I might agree with you. So, for example, um, if you look at a system like, if you look at a system like karate. So if you take a system like Shotokan or Shorin-ru or Shore-ru or, or um, anything like that, you're looking at systems that were they were developed specifically for self-defense and combat. So, is it true that the practitioners held to Eastern philosophies? Well, yeah, because it was created over there. <laughs> those people happened to, to have those philosophies, but they were they were learning these systems and developing these systems based upon combat situations and combat needs. So, their their philosophy really had little to nothing to do with the development of the system itself. So, for example, it doesn't matter from a Christian a Jew, a Muslim, or a Hindu, a fist is still balled the same way. Sure. And the, yeah. body, the, the body is set in a certain way to where there's certain weaknesses and certain strengths that I can strike at. Um, and so it was, it was, that's why I call it martial science. Martial science means fighting science. And when you have, say, Shaolin monks who were developing um, Hung Fai Yi Wing Chun, these guys were sitting there, and they were literally developing day in and day out the science. So they were they were they were discovering what's the strongest position of the arm and the best angle where I can distribute the most weight and the most pounds per square inch. And they literally are sitting in front of each other. This is just amazing to me. All day, all their only job was to develop a system of fighting for the battlefield based upon body weight distribution angles and the most strength so that I was unmovable, and they would base it upon the uh, reflex and response of the body. Now, is it true that, say that one example, Hung Fai Yi Wing Chun, which is like the legit form of Wing Chun, made for the battlefield, is it true that there are elements to that system that where they also have the spiritual philosophy behind it? The answer is yes, they do that. So what you have to say is, I'm only here for the science, and I reject all your philosophy I'm here for the science. Everything else, I don't want any of it, which is perfectly acceptable to do. And if you find an instructor that has a system that tries to blend philosophy with the science, if you have an instructor that refuses, then don't go to that instructor. But generally speaking, um, you'll find that all these instructors, I would say on the whole, the large general question, the vast majority of these teachers and instructors haven't got a clue of the philosophy in the background. They just know the fighting. They just know the science. They just know the angles and the striking. However, you do find here and there some people that have a system that is actually associated really only with that. So here's here's what I mean. So you have combat systems like you did, yeah. combat systems like I did. Those are based, and you know this, it was based on fighting, yeah. right? Um, I never heard a word from my instructors about, you know, some crazy deep mystical philosophy. Not, not, not a word did I hear from them. However, there are systems I would associate with things like yoga that were created on the basis of the philosophy. Gotcha. So, for example, um, uh, so like just as, as this is usually a good way to, to show a parallel, yoga was developed through a spiritual worship service. So it's pagan to its core. It was pagan to begin with. The movements were all developed based upon the pagan philosophy and, and worship. At the very bottom, it was made with this pagan worship, right, as the central component. And somebody might say, well, but yeah, but it gets you really healthy. Well, I would say, okay, but try this on. 
how, what if we had Muslims that developed a worship, um, a worship ritual around Islam, and it was over worship of Allah, and, the, and it just got you really healthy. All that bending down and coming up and down, yeah, it got you really healthy. healthy. I, would, I would say, yeah, exactly. It's really good for your joints, I guess. Um, well, I would say to the Christian who, who wants to say that you can detach yoga, I would say the whole system was based upon worship of Allah from the beginning. Every movement was based upon worship of Allah. Would you Christianize that? And I think most Christians would say, absolutely not. So I would say, and because you recognize you can't divorce something when it is fundamentally from the bottom, centralized around the worship of Allah or, or some Brahman or some pagan deity. Um, so in the same way, there are martial arts systems that are like that. So, for example, Tai Chi can't be divorced. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't divorce Tai Chi because Tai Chi was was created based upon the movements were all created based upon this Eastern mysticism and idea of Chi and the Earth itself. And so, the movements themselves, you can't divorce it. So, for example, even the resting position where you begin to sort of like draw your hands up and then when you move your hands out this direction, you're supposed to be drawing the chi energy up through your heels and your, your, your chi meridians and your body, and you're supposed to be pushing the chi out of your body. So every movement is based upon an Eastern mysticism. Um, so in a, situ- a situation like qigong, tai chi, those sorts of systems, you cannot divorce it. And I would say to a Christian, no, we can't do tai chi. And somebody might say, well, it's a really effective martial arts system. I would say, well, no, it's not. Well, that's the thing. Like, I remember, uh, I remember my Tai Chi was always the thing that my grandfather used to do for, you know, for his joints. It yeah. Was, like, it was never, I mean, you could see, oh, like, as a kid, like, oh, that, that kind of looks like karate or yeah. it kind of looks like a martial art. But it's, he's, go, he's doing so slow and deliberate. Yeah. And it's like, what, what are you going to do with that? Right, right, right. So I would say that, and I wouldn't want to be offensive to any Christian listening to this. I don't want to seem arrogant at all, but I will say this in terms of like a martial science system. No, Tai Chi is not a good martial arts system in terms of fighting. It just isn't. And the reason, reason why is it wasn't created for that. It was, it was created as, as a part of their philosophy to, to basically hit the attacker with Chi and all this. See, this, you, so it doesn't become about science anymore. It's all about the philosophy. So when you, you look at systems like, say, a combat taekwondo system or karate system or a Wing Chun system or a Gracie Jiu-Jitsu system or a Kung Fu system, depending on the Kung Fu system, that are just built for combat and weaponry, well, that's what it's for. And the philosophy and all the spiritual stuff can be absolutely divorced because it wasn't a part of the development of the system, the science part of the system, gotcha. right? Um, so you got to ask that question. How was this art developed and why? And when you look at most majority of martial arts systems, it was developed for combat systems. So, for example, even that one system I talked about at the very beginning, Capoeira. Well, that is this amazing, artistic, beautiful. I mean, I love to watch them do stuff. I really do. It's one of my favorite to watch. Um, Wasn't it, uh, this might just be an urban legend, but wasn't it it developed by slaves? And they had to... uh, sort of design it this way so that uh, their masters would think, oh, they're just dancing. Yes, so they could practice. Okay. So, But what's interesting about that system is is that it's this beautiful art, right? And it's a martial art, but it looks like a dance because they were creating a combat system that they could practice in front of their masters where they would look like they were just dancing, but they were actually training to do combat. Um, so a system like that, was it developed by Christians no, but is there some crazy philosophy underneath that you need to be concerned with? Uh, I would say, no, you focus upon the art itself, which is developed for combat, and the reason it looks unique like that is because of the context that it was in, slaves and masters not being able to practice to fight. So a um, system like that, I don't think it's entirely effective as a martial art, but it's really amazing and beautiful and good for you. I mean, it's really good for you. Um, so it just it's a question of um, what and why. Okay, like what is it? And why? Why was it developed? And why do you want to do it? You know, those kinds of questions. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I hope, yeah, I think that should answer that. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, I mean, it, uh, it led me to another question. Um, pastorally, um, somebody, somebody comes to you uh, and says, you know, I want, to, I want to start training martial arts, Pastor Jeff. Is, is there anybody, is there any type of person for whom that would be, whom you would advise against that? 
Well, that's, a, that's it's tough to ask that because I love the martial arts, and I think they're so, so good. Um, well, I ask you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that, you know, there's, of course, I have a particular bias here because I grew up since I was four years old doing martial arts. I absolutely love it. But it, but because I've been in it since I was four years old and I've traveled the world and I've competed and, and, and been with some of the best martial artists in the world, I can say that there are so many benefits to martial arts that you, you can't get in a lot of things, like full control of your body, um, balance, uh, getting in shape, of course, being very healthy. Um, but here's another important element of it, um, awareness of your surroundings. But when you, when you have to learn to not get punched and kicked, you, you learn an awareness and sort of like a reflex that you just don't develop otherwise. When you're constantly having people throw punches and kicks at you and you have to learn how to block and move and react the right way and angle the right way, it creates an awareness in you of your surroundings, which is very, very helpful. So um, there's even a, a I, have, I have a couple stories of where I was, when I was doing a lot of competition, I used to have to travel every weekend across the country to some new city to compete at a big tournament. And I have several examples in my life of times where um, I was walking in some strange city and I was able to get away from maybe even my life being taken because of the awareness that I had as a martial artist of my surroundings, you know, just constantly being aware of who's looking at me or who's around, around who's making a move towards me. And there were, I, there's three instances in my life where I know that if I wasn't a martial artist, if I hadn't trained the way I had, I, I would not be here today. I would definitely be killed. Um, and it was only because of my, my awareness before the thing happened that I was able to escape with my life. Um, I was jumped by uh, a whole carload of guys in a gang once in Washington, D.C., but I made, my, I made my way out of the situation because I was aware that this thing was about to happen, and I was able to get about a five-second lead on these guys to get around a house and to hide immediately. And as soon as they passed by me, they chased me. They all had clubs and, and pipes in their hands. And, but I was able to move quick enough and disappear fast enough and be aware quick enough so these guys didn't get me. Um, another guy was going to attack me in a city once, but he passed by me, looked real suspicious, and I was talking to a friend. We were just leaving the tournament. And I, as I'm walking, I just sort of, just naturally, without even thinking, I, I, we were walking one direction. He walked past us. I turned around and started walking backwards where I kept my eyes on the guy while I was talking to my friend. And sure enough, he spun around and started grabbing something behind him. And then when he saw that I was looking at him, he stopped and looked down and turned back around and away. But it was just sort of this awareness. Yes. So there's, there's all these benefits of, of course, being healthy, self-awareness, self-discipline, getting in shape. Also, for kids in particular, my goodness. I mean, there, is, there are so many benefits. There's this culture in the martial arts of respect, right? You know, this is my teacher. This person is, is instructing me. And so you, you have this culture, historic culture in the martial arts where you respect your sensei, your master instructor. And all these kids come in from like three years old on up and they're learning to say yes, sir, no, sir, to do what they're told the moment they're told to do it, to sit down, stand up, go do this, try harder, work harder. There's this culture that is just so good for kids right? It's just, it's a great way to discipline and, um, and to give kids a confidence, a, a healthy confidence and awareness of themselves and their surroundings, um, to be able to defend themselves if attacked. That's a good thing to send, to send a person off into the world that knows if I get attacked, I can manage. Right. That's, that's a really huge blessing. So, um, in terms of who I would say no to, I used to call them meatheads. Sure. Um, in my martial arts school, we would have guys that had watched MMA stuff on TV or cage fights, and they would come into the school and they would want to learn some stuff so they can get into cage fights or fight guys. So I, I call them meatheads because they would I, I I would see them walking into the school and my staff was there. I would say I would say, oh, looks like we have a meathead, and was, sure enough, it was the guy. Like he'd come in and he's you know muscle bound and. Yeah, he's like, he's trying to sort of like, you know, puff his chest up against me, but he's asking me to teach him, you know, and, and he you know, asked him like, what do you, what do you want to learn for? And they want to learn to go pulverize some guy in a cage. So I would just tell him, this is probably not the school for you, bro. You know, I, I, I'm just not into that. So I would say in a situation like that, I would turn guys like that away and say, I don't think that your motivations here are proper. Uh, but otherwise I'd say everybody should do martial arts. 
Good for you. Yeah, and I mean, I guess, uh, like, you, you talk about the discipline that you learn from an early age. Like, yes. you can't uh, you can't get your, your four-year-old into a military program. Like, yeah. this is... Uh, yeah. This is what uh, what it is. Yes, yes. I can tell you so many other cool benefits too. This is really this is awesome. I um for many many years I used to consult for guys and uh, teach for their schools and run their schools across the country for them. And then I decided at one point I was tired of doing it for other people. I was going to do it for myself. And so I opened my own school. It was very successful. We had like three hundred students, families. It was just it was a great experience. I loved every minute of it. And I was doing ministry actually at the same time in terms of, of um, you know, pastoral teaching. So I, so I had my business and I was doing that at the same time. Um, but I had so many kids come in and I lost count who were on um, ADD and ADHD medication when they came to me. And after six months or a year in the martial arts, they were off their medication and they had been on it their whole lives. Um, so that happened so many times I had lost count. As to how many kids we were able to get off that medication because they just needed to learn discipline and self-control. And when you have a big scary man in a black belt standing above you, yelling in your face to stand still and to sit down and to stand up and do what I say and look at my face, call, yes sir, like it changes them. Now they go from a place of sort of just like lollygagging and just not paying attention to I better listen to this guy because he's terrifying. Yeah. Straightens out the neural pathways <laughs> like nothing else can. So I had, I had also uh, students who were handicapped. I had children with Down syndrome that I was able to get them from a place where they were not even able to manage life, where they were difficult at first in class, but I got them all the way up to like black belt level. And of course, they couldn't do everything everyone else did, but by the time they got to that advanced level, they, they looked like the average person their age in terms of their ability to sit in a class and to listen and do as they're told. And that was an amazing experience. And I think that that's because of the system itself develops certain things like discipline, self-control, all those things, because you're forced to. Um, now, not on a deep level, a spiritual level of self-control, like not lusting, but in terms of standing still and doing what you're told to do, that it, it does it. Could there be such a thing as a distinctly Christian martial art, martial science? Um, could there be such a thing? I, I suppose... Well, that'll be hard. You know, that's hard to say because you could do what a lot of guys do, and that's they actually have their martial science, but they tell people, they broadcast, they say, now I'm a Christian, and in order to get to your next belt, you have to memorize this Bible verse and that Bible verse. There's guys that actually do that. Okay. They, they'll say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you Christian philosophy and biblical worldview while I teach this science. Um, and a lot of people love that and do that. However, this is where it gets interesting. It'd be possible for someone to take if a guy, say, developed an entire martial arts system with a Christian worldview and just started, you know, applying it scientifically all these different directions, it's possible still for someone to come from an Eastern mindset and just come in and pick up the mechanics. Yeah, yeah, right? it wouldn't look too materially different. Yeah, it's not like the techniques would be like, here's the cross technique, you know, where you're spinning in a circle with your arms out or something like that, you know, that wouldn't work anyway. Um, but, but that's what's interesting about it in terms of the mechanics. And this is why I say like it, it sort of moves into all the world and it doesn't really matter what the practitioner's philosophy was underneath it. The mechanics of it are the mechanics of it, right? Like for example, like a plane can fly like it does because we learn how to trick the air and get lift. And that's because the mechanics of the wings, right? And all the stuff going into propulsion and all that stuff. Well, that's because that's how the world works. It's, it's, it's kind of presuppositional. Yeah. You know, it's like... This is, this is the way that God designed the body, and yeah. this is what we have to work with. That's right. That's, you, you said it better than I could have just now. When you, when you talk about the placement of the foot, like I know that people listening to this can't see this right now, but when, it, oh, when, no, when a person lines their body up, say with the attacker, if you're, if you're looking at them from your right side and your shoulders line up with them, there's only a certain way that you can get maximum, maximum torque into an attacker. So my shoulder has to be lined up so that all the pounds per square inch can go into the attacker. My foot that I'm standing on, if it's turned this way, facing my chest and not towards uh, away from the attacker, then it means when I kick, I don't have my full hip thrust into the move. And um, if it's turned this way, I can't balance. I'll fall. All they have to do is lean on me, and I fall on the ridge of my foot. So th that's the point is the mechanics is 
if my foot's not balanced perfectly this way, I can't get the full hip motion. And if it's not balanced this way, I won't be able to stand up if they push towards me when I'm kicking them. And if I don't line up this way, my shoulder can't line up that way, and my butt can't pull in so I can kick them with the heel so that every inch, every pound of my body's pressure goes into that one ball on the heel. So I need to direct all the energy and power of my body into a single spot, which is my heel, into the attacker. So that's just the most scientifically powerful, best, precise way to hit somebody with the best pounds per square inch for a sidekick. So it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or a Buddhist. You can't change that. That's just how the body works, right? So, so in terms of Christian philosophy, I'm not sure how you would actually develop from the bottom up a martial science based upon like Bible passages. You could do it philosophically by saying all the things in terms of justice and the right time to strike somebody and for what reason and all those things. So you could definitely have a Christian philosophy underneath that, but the science and the mechanics would be what they are. You might be able to have someone who is um, an Eastern person develop a more precise and effective martial arts combat system than a Christian, right? Because maybe the Christian doesn't understand the mechanics as well. So it just really depends on the mechanics. But here's the amazing thing. The person who is into Eastern mysticism will not develop a holistic martial arts system like the Christian will because of their system, because of their philosophy, if they try to inject that in. So I'll give you an example. Maybe this will help. Um, one of the guys that I learned some stuff from a long time ago, so effective, his name was Frank Cucci. He was, the, uh, he was a member of SEAL Team 6, and he was the one who created, in essence, created the Navy SEALs fighting system. It's only a few techniques. I mean, it is amazing how limited it is. It's like a front punch, a jab, a cross, a hook punch. It's elbow strikes. It's a knee, a foot jab, and a, a tie roundhouse kick. There's your strikes. And, um, and then it's, uh, you know, it's, it's little things here and there, but it's like the movement on the floor. But all they get is like two weeks. All they get is two weeks of these combat techniques, and then they're on, and that's it. That's all you're getting for hand-to-hand. And, um, but what's interesting about that is that when Frank Cucci or these guys are teaching Navy SEALs their, their combat system with their hands and their feet, they're getting two weeks of what? Science and mechanics. This is how it works. Yeah. That's what you do. And they don't, they don't give a rip about the Eastern mysticism. And yeah, all. They don't yeah. care. They wouldn't tell you, and now put your fingers together and say, oh, they, mm-hmm, they're mm-hmm. like, this is how you break somebody's face. Yeah, no, totally. <laughs> and, that's, and that's all there is to it. Yeah. <laughs> so in, in, that, in that point, it doesn't really make a difference of the philosophy. It's the mechanics. Mm. And they're not learning any of those things. Right. So right. in terms of the philosophy. Yeah, yeah. Except probably rules of engagement. When can I break someone's face? Yeah. (laughs) We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast for Cultural Reformation. Please take a moment to like, subscribe, share, rate the podcast on your favorite listening platform. For more Ezra Institute resources, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca.